This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. That's kind of a gruesome picture, isn't it? But I like to imagine Darwin in the dissecting room actually helping us all out. So this is a lecture that's an experiment for me. It's shifting the focus. All of my previous lectures about evolution and medicine have been about traits, things like height and pneumonia and cancer and all the rest. Today I'm going to shift gears and try to apply the things we've learned about how to analyze why traits are vulnerable to disease and ask instead why genes that cause disease persist in the genome despite the actions of natural selection. Evolutionary medicine, just to be very clear, is not a specialized method of practice. There's nothing alternative about it whatsoever. It's simply applying the well-established basic principles from evolutionary biology to medicine and public health and trying to use them to improve human health. So the central question I've been preoccupied by is why bodies have traits that link them vulnerable to disease? Completely different from the usual medical research question. Most medical research is about why people are different. Our interest is instead about why we are all the same in ways that are kind of like the gas tank on the Pinto. Um, there are things that, about our bodies from our backs to our appendices. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. The first half of medical school, you must react with awe if you're paying attention at all. Um, the loop of Henley in the kidney, no details now, but oh my gosh, if you're not astounded, you're not paying attention. Everybody recognizes how great the heart is and the valves in the right place at the right time, and the pump does not need to be oiled every few months. Um, the eye is miraculous in the fact of its astounding function, although it's actually not well designed. Um, the human hand is almost equally good in terms of all of those muscles and tendons and, and joints working in tandem to allow us to do amazing things. Um, the clotting mechanism had better work well or else. And then the part of biology that I thought was absolutely ridiculous and stupid and at least made me mad when I was a medical student and now I find fascinating because of taking an evolutionary viewpoint is biochemistry and intermediary metabolism. <laughs> For any students in the audience, I assure you, don't pay attention to your professors. Go to evolutionary thinking about these things, and it will make sense. That's the first half of medical school. Second half, you get into the clinic, and what do you see? Somebody goofed. You start off with the wisdom teeth. Why? You go further to the appendix. Whoa. You go further to the place in your arm that always breaks when you fall forward. Why isn't it bigger? The coronary arteries, couldn't they just be a little bit wider, please? And as for that birth canal... Um, why not just have a zipper in the front instead of... Uh, it's, it's, it's. And then there's the spine, as I mentioned before. And the body could be so much better in so many different ways. These are traits, not genes, just traits. And the old answer about why natural selection didn't do a better job is, well, it's a random process and it's not that strong. That is absolutely one important contribution to why bodies aren't better, but it's only one. And a foundation for evolutionary thinking in medicine has been to analyze every kind of vulnerability of a trait in terms of six possible different evolutionary reasons why we're vulnerable. I'm going to list them very quickly. I mean, I've given many, many lectures about these applying to traits. They're on the web if you're interested. Today I'm going to zip through them and apply them to genes. One is natural selection just can't do it. Two is we're living in an environment very different from the environment in which we evolved. Three is that pathogens, bacteria and viruses, evolve faster than we do. 
Four is trade-offs. Nothing can be perfect. Everything can be adjusted in ways that are better, but at the cost of making something else worse. Five, and this is a deep one, natural selection does not shape any organism for health or longevity or happiness or cooperation. It shapes all of them for maximizing their ability to transmit their genes. Very disturbing idea. The last is useful defenses that seem like diseases, such as fever, pain, nausea, vomiting, cough, and all the rest. Now I'm going to shift, though, my usual talk and give up on talking about traits and ask about genes, the focus of so much modern medical research, and ask, why do genes at increased risk of disease persist? And the first thing I recognized as I started down this path is that we don't need to just talk about the usual foci of medical research, which are the myriad kinds of specific variations in genes that make us vulnerable to disease. We also need to talk about genes that we all share that are fixed. Fixed means we all have it, that make us vulnerable to disease. This led me to just say there's four different kinds of genes we should be thinking about. First are the regular ones, widespread variation, all the regular genetic studies. Two, variation between populations. Dark is a gene that almost everyone in Africa has because it protects against vivax malaria. Hardly anyone living in northern climates has this gene. Fixed or missing genes for everybody recently, recently the past few million years. Um, the one that Ajit Varki studies, uh, NU5GC and GLOW, um, more about those in just a moment. The fourth category is genes that we all have, such as genes that make bilirubin and genes that make dopamine, all of which make us vulnerable to disease. So a big shift in thinking here, not just variations among individuals and their different genes, but genes that we all have that make us vulnerable to disease. The first reason, limits of selection. A lot of selection can't do things. And the biggest limit to selection is mutations happen. About 60 to 130 per individual per generation. And a deep question for another time is how on earth the genome can fail to melt down given the difficulty of getting rid of each of those. But they are all gradually selected out by natural selection, except that natural selection is by no means all powerful. There's something that geneticists call drift, which is really referring to random factors that make genes become more or less common just by luck of the draw, not because of anything pushing them to higher or lower frequencies. This can result in good genes being lost and bad genes becoming more common. Here is the biggest question that faces us in medical genetics today. We all thought just about 15 years ago that the highly heritable diseases such as schizophrenia, autism, bipolar disease, and all things like diabetes and all the rest, that they were highly heritable. We know their variation in these diseases is caused by genetic variations. So we should be able to find the, the, the genes and fix these diseases. This has been one of the greatest disappointments in modern medicine. We're making some progress, but it was a huge disappointment. This is a graph um, done by one of my former students and his colleagues looking at genes for schizophrenia. I say genes, what I really mean for the technically inclined is alleles, that is different variations that influence risk of something like schizophrenia. These are ones that are relatively uncommon, and they have relatively large effects, increasing the risk of schizophrenia by as much as five to 10 times. But they're very, very rare. These are alleles that are relatively common, and their effect on schizophrenia is really quite tiny. They increase the risk by 1% or 2% or 3%. Notice that they all fall on the same line. Notice next that there are no genes over there. There are no effects. There are no common genes of large effect. 
What happened to them? Natural selection eliminated them is the main hypothesis. But more important here, all of these genes have the exact same proportion of variance explained. And that proportion of variance is 0.04%, which is a teensy, teensy, teensy amount of explanation. This has been terribly frustrating. A gene that causes less than 5% of 5% is not going to get you very far in terms of explaining these diseases. Sickle cell disease has been the exemplar for evolutionary medicine, but I'd like to suggest to you it's a very poor exemplar. It's interesting because of the mechanism that maintains the frequency of the alleles that cause sickle cell disease. It was first discovered, actually, in part by people, colleagues of mine at Michigan, Jim Neal and his colleagues, and they pointed out that when they went to Africa and looked at the distribution of malaria and the distribution of sickle cell disease, it was about the same. And then they thought about it more deeply in a genetic way and recognized something that's called balancing selection. This maintains the frequency of the alleles that cause sickle cell disease. You have to have two of them to get the sickle cell disease at a certain frequency. If you have two regular hemoglobin copies, you're vulnerable to malaria, but you don't get sickle cell disease. If you have two of the sickle cell kinds of hemoglobin, you get severe disease, often dying young, and usually not being able to reproduce. But if you have one of each, and you're living in Africa where the malaria is common, or around the Mediterranean where it's common, it's not just Africa, um, you get some malaria protection and the anemia is not too severe. These people do better in terms of having more offspring than these or these. And this means that so long as that gene isn't too common, if it gets too common, then a lot of people get two copies and it's terrible. If it's really rare, no benefit, but middle range. Fascinating example, but again, it's not a great example um, because what natural selection does when these kinds of things happen is find some other solution. This has only been going on for 10 to 20,000 years, and we don't have very many other examples of balancing selection. I say this because so many of my colleagues, especially in psychiatry, are constantly making up stories about possible traits like schizophrenia, for instance, resulting from heterozygote advantage or balancing selection. There's really not much evidence for that except for other kinds of hemoglobinopathies that protect against malaria. There are a few others, but it's not a common explanation. It shouldn't be the exemplar. Something that should be, though, is something like dopamine. You probably are all aware that dopamine in the substantia nigra and the brain and basal ganglia, um, if you don't have enough of it and your neurons are dying off, you get Parkinson's disease. It's common. Why are we vulnerable to Parkinson's disease? Well, it turns out that it's inherent to the nature of the dopamine molecule. When it's metabolized, the dopamine molecule makes hydrogen peroxide and other oxygen radicals. These things, whenever they glom onto a piece of tissue, fry it, essentially. Dopamine is an inherently toxic molecule, and we're not going to be able to replace it because it's been used to regulate motivation systems for about a billion years now. No, no chance of changing that, but it's also inherently dangerous. There are built-in protection mechanisms in those nerves to protect them against the effects of dopamine, and when those aren't work, working quite right for one reason or another, people get Parkinson's disease. Second explanation, mismatch with the environment. We used to think that common diseases were caused by common genes and we would find them. But that turned out not to be the case. Hardly any common diseases are caused by common genes that are large effects. Most disease genes that have large effects are what George Williams and I have called quirks. Quirks are not defective. They're genes that have bad effects only in modern environments. And this leads to the paradoxical finding that most highly heritable diseases are caused by the environment. 
Doesn't that sound odd? Quirks, harmless in a natural environment, cause disease in a novel environment. Uh, Ken Weiss, a geneticist, says the widespread desertion of these common risk alleles, they're benign. So if the, the, the proves they're benign, so if they're associated with disease, this means that they're interacting with modern environments to causing disease, pointing the finger to the environment. So next time the New York Times says, we found a gene for um, uh, atherosclerosis, that's, it's probably a gene that didn't do much harm back in the environments of the sort that Mike Gervin has been studying. It's a gene that interacts with Big Macs to cause heart attacks. Nearsightedness. Whether you're nearsighted or not depends almost entirely on your genes. So why didn't natural selection get rid of them? Answer, hardly anyone is nearsighted in ancestral environments. Something about modern environments boosts the rate so that everybody who has those genes gets nearsighted. Three candidates for that. One is doing close work. Two is high doses of sugar. Three, low levels of light because of living indoors. Yet to discover exactly what this is, we could eventually cure or prevent nearsightedness if we could find the answer. Scurvy. Our ancestors didn't have scurvy because they made their own ancestors back a few million years. Um, they made their own vitamin C, but we lost the ability to make vitamin C, and we lost it right about here. Um, owl, monkeys, marmosets, and humans and gorillas, we can't make it. Lemurs and others can. Why did that ability get lost? One hypothesis has been that it's just because we had so much fruit in our diet, it didn't matter. And that's a perfectly plausible one. But other people have suggested that changes in this particular enzyme increase our ability to store fats. Very interesting to try to answer that question. Third reason is infection. Pathogens evolve faster than we do. It's too bad, and it's amazing that we can ever, ever outrun them. Therefore, there's very strong selection to survive whatever kinds of pathogens and infections are around. But whenever you see a mutation that gets selected so strongly to prevent infection, you should look very carefully to see if there might be bad side effects to that gene. Turns out that there's lots of evidence about this. A nice recent paper goes through many of them, shows pretty convincingly that each epidemic shapes quite dramatic changes in allele frequencies. And furthermore, it points out that CCR5, um, you get HIV protection if you have this particular mutation, but you're more vulnerable to West Nile. If you have an old blood type, you get protection against malaria, but you're more vulnerable to cholera. We need to not think about good genes and bad genes. We need to be thinking about variations that have costs and benefits. Trade-offs. Nothing in the body is perfect. Everything is a trade-off. My favorite example is bilirubin. Why make bilirubin? It's toxic. It turns you yellow. Turns out it's wonderful at stopping reactive oxygen species from burning up your tissues. And if people who have a disease causing high bilirubin levels have heart attacks at half the rate of others, very important for practical terms in a neonatal nursery where kids are routinely put under lights for even mild increases of bilirubin, even though that bilirubin decreases the number of reactive oxygen species in their bodies. Genes for aging, George Williams pointed out a new explanation, that is, they might have benefits in childhood when uh, selection is strong and costs only later in life, the so-called antagonistic pleiotropy theory. If, in fact, we could eliminate aging and the mortality rate stayed the same throughout life as it is at age 20, most of us would live to about age 800 to 1,000. Amyloid beta is the bad guy for causing Alzheimer's disease, but it's demonstrated recently that, in fact, it's a potent antimicrobial 
Every single one of these genes seems like it's just a bad actor, but it's there for a reason. Not all are. We shouldn't assume it, but we should consider the possibilities. And then Ajit Varki's work, he's shown that all humans are missing a gene that our primate ancestors all had. That is one for new 5GC, and it turns out that two or three million years ago we lost it, but we keep eating other foods that have that in it, and it may well be that, causing it, that, that that causes inflammatory reactions, which might be responsible for the high burden of inflammatory disease in humans. It might be that the reason that happened was to help us avoid uh, the kind of malaria that influences chimpanzees, because that molecule is what, chimpanz- is what the malaria pathogen uses to get into blood cells. Reproduction can increase uh, change can increase reproduction and harm health. Um, APOE4 increases progesterone and reproduction, even though it causes heart attacks and Alzheimer's disease. Even the BRCA gene causing breast cancer has been said to increase number of offspring. And finally, defenses such as pain, fever, and all the rest are useful, but at a high cost. Wrapping up, why do disease genes persist? The same six categories that proved so useful in trying to understand why certain traits are vulnerable to causing disease helps us to understand genetic variations and genetic uniformities in ways that make us vulnerable to disease. Constraints leave us with mutations and heterozygote advantage vulnerabilities. Mismatch results in quirks that were harmless now causing disease. Trade-offs come with benefits but costs. Pathogens create arm races. Reproduction sometimes shapes changes in genes that increase reproduction at a cost to health, and defenses are dangerous and costly. Again, going back to four different kinds of genes, variations among individuals, variations among human subgroups, recent changes that we all have, such as losing the ability to synthesize vitamin C, and then other things like dopamine that we all have had for a very long time. We need to be thinking about all these different kinds of genes and their ways in which they make us vulnerable to disease. This exercise of writing this lecture was fun for me because it came out with surprising conclusions I hadn't anticipated. First, there's a very high proportion of disease vulnerability genes that are shaped by benefits of protecting against infection. And two, they persist because of selection for infection, increasing reproduction, and extending the lifespan. Those of you who are interested, we now do have a scientific society, evolutionary medicine. It's called the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, Public Health. We have a meeting in Europe um, that you'd be welcome to go. EvMed Ed is a resource. And EvMedReview.com offers news for the field, including right now a meeting that's open for anyone who wants to attend November 10th in Berlin and information about jobs at ASU. Thanks very much. As humans, we often ponder the pleasures of life, right? Things like good food, a drink with friends after a long week of work, right? Falling in love, that's a great thing in life, right? Uh, Spending time with family. These are all uh, undoubtedly great things that we enjoy in our lives. I'd also argue that sleep is one of those great things in our lives, right? There's nothing better than sleep when you're truly tired. And the feeling of climbing into bed, pulling up the covers, putting your head down and falling asleep is pure bliss. And we see this in cases of extreme sleep deprivation. Uh, For example, here's a picture of Peter Tripp. Uh, He was a DJ in New York in the 1950s. And as a publicity and fundraising stunt, he tried to stay awake for as long as he could. 
Um, he managed to stay awake for over eight days, uh, which is pretty remarkable, on the air the entire time. Um, what's even more remarkable to me is that others came along and actually beat his record. Uh, I can't imagine why anyone would want to do this. But on a less extreme scale, I bet that most everyone in this room follows the same pattern that I do. And that is we sleep too little during the week, and then we catch up on sleep on the weekend. Right? And so I bring up these examples to illustrate the love-hate relationship that we seem to have with sleep. On the one hand, we love sleep, and people often say, I love sleep. But on the other hand, we always have something better to do than sleep. Isn't that right? Um, you know, it's, sleep is seen as something um, that we can do without or that we would like to do without. Um, and certainly we cut into it uh, very commonly. And so just like we hear people say, I love sleep, we also hear them say, I wish I could function on less sleep. Now, today I want to present uh, some findings from my lab over the last couple of years that suggest that this love-hate relationship is not a new phenomenon. It's not a new phenomenon associated with television or social media or artificial lighting or all the other kinds of evils you might think of if you're a sleep uh, medicine, sleep biology, in sleep medicine or sleep biology. Instead, our findings are suggesting that sleep, uh, that natural selection has been whittling away sleep along the human lineage probably for millions of years. And we also think that this might have implications for understanding some aspects of human health. So I want to start with a little bit of background. Uh, first of all, what is sleep? Sleep is a reversible state of rest, right? So it's not like a coma. It can be easily reversed. Sleep can. It involves reduced awareness and responsiveness to surroundings. It involves a rebound effect. I just talked about that with our catch-up sleep that many of us are going to have tonight after this long week of work and travel and everything else. You have to compensate for lost sleep. And very importantly, sleep is not one thing. It's actually two different things. Sleep, when you're not awake, you're actually in two different states. You're in non-REM sleep uh, or in REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And this is, of course, REM sleep is, of course, when uh, the most visual dreaming occurs. And a sleep biologist can differentiate these two stages based on EEG. Now, I want to just walk you through what would be considered an ideal or normal night's sleep. This is showing an eight-hour time period from about 11 p.m. until you know, roughly 7 a.m., so an eight-hour block of consolidated sleep. And ideally, you would fall into the, the deeper stages of non-REM sleep first. You'd spend some time in non-REM sleep, and then you'd actually arouse out of non-REM and go into REM. It's a different stage. It's not just a deeper stage of non-REM sleep. That cycle then continues throughout the night. You go into another, a second bout now of non-REM sleep into deep, slow-wave sleep, and you come out into REM sleep. Uh, now, periodically throughout the night, you would also awaken. I want to really focus on one question today. How does human sleep differ from the sleep we see in other primates? And I want to be a little bit more provocative and ask, are humans evolutionary outliers in terms of the kinds of sleep that we have in terms of the characteristics of our sleep. And so, of course, we think in evolutionary anthropology a lot about how humans are different from other primates. Often those are questions about discrete traits, qualitative traits, right? Bipedalism, how we use tools, or whether we use tools, or whether we have a theory of mind. Here I'm interested in a quantitative trait, the characteristics of sleep. 
And so I need to first define what I mean by an evolutionary outlier. This is a trait that's more extreme than one would predict based on the modeling of trait evolution on a phylogeny, on an evolutionary tree. So based on what we know about the various socioecological factors that influence sleep in primates, as well as the phylogeny and where we fall on that phylogeny, we can predict sleep characteristics in humans. So for example, we know that predation risk across mammals will tend to reduce sleep times. If animals cannot, don't, do not have a safe place to sleep, they sleep less. And so we can use that knowledge across mammals to actually predict what human sleep would look like. And then, of course, once we have a good prediction and some confidence intervals on it, we can ask, where does our observed value of human sleep fall compared to what is predicted? And if it falls outside that distribution, we would be an outlier. We're different from what you would predict based on what's known about sleep in other primates. And so we use a method uh, that's been developed in my lab called phylogenetic prediction, where we use a statistical model in phylogeny to predict a phenotype in a particular species, in this case humans. We basically have a, a bunch of different variables um, that can go into this, and we estimate these parameters in the model, and we also incorporate evolutionary history. And we implement this, we make estimates of this model using a Bayesian approach, that produces a posterior probability distribution of predictions. So this is what you might see in this kind of a case. We use this approach, and we come up with a posterior probability of distribution of predictions, as you see here. Then the question, of course, is where do humans fall? Are we above this distribution? Is our observed sleep time above this distribution? We would be a positive outlier. Or we could be a negative outlier, the observed value falls below this distribution, or we can be about what you would expect if we were a typical primate. So the, the critical question in all of this, of course, is what value do we put on this distribution? Okay, and so what is the duration of human sleep? What would be a good estimate of the duration of human sleep? Well, here I'm going to use a value of seven hours, um, and I think that's a fairly conservative estimate based on several different lines of evidence. Some of this evidence is from our own work, studying a traditional population, agriculturalists, who live in Madagascar, and they're a population without access to electricity. And in this population, I'll talk about this in a little bit later in my talk, we find that people sleep on average six and a half hours a night. Um, we've also studied the Hadza hunter-gatherers, um, and there we find that the average sleep time is 6.2 hours per night. Likewise, a recent study of 300 gatherer groups found that the average sleep time across those three groups was 6.5 hours, pretty short. These guys don't have TV, right? They don't have all the things that we have, the social media and all the other, and the artificial lighting, and they're actually sleeping a little bit less. Another study of a non-electric population also gives seven hours, or we can look at Western populations, and it's about seven hours uh, in a recent meta-analysis. And so we think that this is a conservative estimate of, a of typical human sleep, seven hours. Okay, so here's a picture of a Hadza uh, man sleeping uh, with his fire, uh, some uh, weapons next to him, and um, on the ground, right, which is different from most other primates. And I just want to share with you the three things that we found from our analyses. First of all, humans sleep less than you would be predicted, so we're a negative outlier. Uh, we spend a greater proportion of time in REM sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep, and we um, are very flexible in our sleep, more flexible than would be predicted. All right, so let me walk you through the evidence for each of these three points. 
First of all, here's the distribution of sleep times uh, for primates where we have data, okay? And we have a pretty good number of species now studied uh, for their sleep. And what you see is that humans are the shortest sleeping of all the primates. Now, again, we want to control for phylogeny and for these other ecological variables, and so we've used this phylogenetic prediction approach that I talked about. Um, here's our equation that we're using to predict sleep duration in humans. And here's our posterior probability distribution of those predictions. And what you can see is that the observed value falls below this distribution, right? We are a negative outlier. In fact, the mean predicted dur sleep duration for humans is 10.3 hours from this analysis. And we're clearly different from that. Here's the second result involving REM sleep. Humans, again, have the highest percentage of REM sleep of all the primates. Now, again, we wanted to use this outlier approach, this phylogenetic prediction approach. And so, again, here's our uh, equation relating uh, REM sleep to activity period, body mass, brain size, diet, interbirth interval, group size, and phylogeny. And you can see the posterior distribution in this case, and here's the observed value. So here we're a positive outlier. And we know that this is achieved via higher-than-expected REM sleep. Uh, so if we just look at the total amount of REM, we're looking here at the percentage of REM, but the total REM, we have higher-than-expected REM and less-than-expected non-REM. It looks like both of these are shifted. Okay, then the final um, set of results I want to share with you um, involves a hypothesis uh, that we came up with based on uh, the ethnographic literature, based on experimental studies, um, and based on the historical record. And that is that, na that natural human sleep is more flexible than we usually appreciate. And so let me just walk you through some of the, um, the, the findings that were already out there before we came into this sphere. Um, here's, from the, here's an example from the ethnographic literature, uh, worked by Dan Everett on the Paraha, South American hunter-gatherers, where he reports that the Paraha take naps, 15 minutes to two hours at the extreme during the day and night. There's loud talking in the village all night long. Consequently, it's very difficult for outsiders to sleep well among the Paraha. And in a, a more uh, sort of a review article of all of this ethnographic literature um, on sleep patterns, Carol Worthman notes that human nights are filled with activity and significance, and nowhere do people typically sleep from evening until dawn. In terms of the historical record, some of you might be familiar with Roger E. Kirch's work, um, in which he looked through the historical record um, in multiple cultures in Europe over the past couple of thousand years and found evidence in many in much of the written um, uh, record there for uh, references to a first sleep and a second sleep with a period of nighttime activity in between. Okay, and so he found evidence for what would be called segmented sleep. And likewise, in experimental studies, for example, Tom Ware's studies, um, he, when he put humans into a long night condition, so a 14-hour condition where people were not allowed to have access to lighting, they shifted into a biphasic sleep condition, so again, segmented sleep. Of course, other primates also show uh, nighttime activity, but um, people, my, my colleagues and I in my lab have hypothesized that humans are more extreme than other primates. Well, unfortunately, we don't have data on other primates, but we can look at how flexible um, sleep is among people living in traditional populations. Uh, so as I mentioned, we've been doing work uh, in the Hadza. This is work led by a postdoc in my lab, David Sampson. We've been doing work in the Hadza using actigraphy devices that are just watches, basically, that measure activity levels. And from that, with algorithms, we can make inferences about sleep. 
And also um, in the Malagasy population, the agriculturalists, we've been using actigraphy, but also EEG. So we actually have the gold standard measure of sleep um, in one of these two populations. And I just want to share with you some of the things that we find. This is a, a big table, but let me focus on two uh, elements in it. This is total sleep duration in the Madagascar population, 6.5 hours, as I mentioned previously, compared to seven in a typical Western population, in this case in the USA, using the same techniques. Likewise, the sleep fragmentation metrics are much higher um, in the Malagasy population, and sleep efficiency is much lower. So they're up a lot more during the night. Likewise, we found some evidence for segmented sleep, the same kind of segmented sleep that Roger E. Kirch has documented in European historical record. So um, this is showing a functional linear modeling of circadian patterns uh, among the individuals in our sample. And this is the nighttime hours in this population. And what we find is a significant bump up in activity, especially in men, just after midnight for a substantial amount of time, in fact. And this is at the time when there's over 12 hours of darkness uh, in this population. So they're winter. And as well, we find in the Hadza hunter-gatherers that once they go to sleep, there can often be long periods of wakefulness and quite fragmented sleep, as you can see from some of these uh, plots, where the dark lines are indicating um, sleep time, with the first one being the inferred sleep onset, and then lots of activity at night. Okay, so I want to wrap up uh, with three questions uh, very quickly, go through three questions. First of all, why are humans such short sleepers? You know, what is going on with this? Based on this, should we be short sleepers today? Is this giving us some reason to think that maybe we don't need all of this sleep? And then finally, does the evolution of sleep, uh, of short sleep, potentially affect health? Okay, so why are humans such short sleepers? Um, Our answer to that is that, just like today, throughout human evolution, our ancestors have had better things to do than sleep. And some of the potential selective forces that might be at play to shorten sleep along our lineage is that we sleep on the ground. Um, And we know from other species, other primates, there's greater predation risk on the ground. If you are experiencing greater predation risk, that should select for less sleep. As well, um, being on the ground may expose individuals to greater inter- and intergroup conflict, where it would be easier for a conspecific, another member of, of Homo sapiens, to attack Um, at night because of this terrestrial sleep. But as well, um, sleep comes with opportunity costs, and one of those involves social interaction. When you're sleeping, you're not socializing, and we know how important socializing is for humans. And in particular, it's important in the context of social learning, right? And um, from the awake time to acquire and transmit new skills and knowledge. So we think that many of the things that have made humans so successful have also favored less sleep. Now, as well, the the higher percentage of REM sleep may relate to this last issue um, because it's thought that REM sleep also plays a role in consolidation of memories and simulating various kinds of threats and problem solving. So do these results suggest that we should sleep less? Um, You know, should we uh, be considering a paleo sleep plan of some kind? I think our, our findings and those of others are suggesting that a paleo sleep plan would involve very short and fragmented sleep, um, very brutish in in another way. And I think we can turn to evolutionary medicine to help us think about this issue. A central tenet of evolutionary medicine, as we've heard in the previous talks, is that natural selection operates on reproductive success, 
not on health. In fact, short, fragmented sleep is associated with many poor health outcomes. Those include cardiovascular disease, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, um, metabolic dysfunction of various sorts involving diabetes, for example, um, and cancer, right? So there are serious problems with having a short, fragmented sleep. Yet many of these problems would actually occur likely later in life, post-reproduction and the selection shadows. And so perhaps uh, we need to think about whether reproductive success is more relevant to us today or health and longevity. Um, if reproductive success is important, maybe a paleo sleep plan is a good one. Uh, but I bet that most people in this room are more concerned about health and longevity, in which case this is probably a bad idea. And in fact, I would suggest that humans today are having the best sleep that we've ever had in our evolutionary history. And, you know, so you could imagine that uh, this gentleman's having a much better sleep on average than this individual is going to have um, tonight. And there are many reasons to enjoy this for those health benefits I just mentioned, as well as uh, for better cognitive function, better immune function, um, et cetera. Does evolution help us understand modern sleep and sleep disorders? Of course, many people do not get to experience this kind of nice, uh, relaxing sleep, consolidated sleep. For example, many people, about 10% of the U.S. population has some kind of insomnia. Um, and, you know, based on our findings, I guess one question that arises is, should we really expect to sleep through the night every night? That doesn't look like it's really been a part of our evolutionary history. That seems to be a, a modern phenomenon that we strive for. And so perhaps middle-of-the-night insomnia is not so unexpected, especially for those of us that may have uh, ancestors who had that kind of segmented sleep pattern. As well, you could imagine that individuals who experience threats of various kinds would have an adaptive response to not sleep. And of course, in modern society, many people do still feel, uh, do experience these threats. People living in inner city environments, for example, or um, people in a relationship where there might be domestic violence. Um, as well, there's societal threats, such as racism. Many people are now showing that these kind of threats affect people's sleep, leading to sleep disparities, and they're even linking that up to some of the other health disparities that are known, for example, among different racial groups in the U.S. And so finally, does the evolution of short sleep help us to understand disease? Uh, is there a case of that? Recently, Randy Nessie, uh, Tuck Finch, and I proposed that this may help us understand Alzheimer's disease, which is thought to be a uniquely uh, human disease, as we heard previously from in Ajit's talk. And this really relates, our idea relates to the glymphatic system. This is a system of the brain that's only recently been discovered in the last several years. It's an amazing set of discoveries. And this glymphatic system is involved in removing metabolic byproducts, uh, including amyloid beta, which is involved, of course, as you know, in Alzheimer's disease. And so a lot's being learned about this system of how the cerebral spinal fluid moves through the brain and picks up various kinds of pollutants in the brain and carries them away. And most importantly for our hypothesis is that this system functions most effectively during sleep. So we're proposing that this is one trade-off, there are probably others, of evolution acting to reduce sleep along the human lineage. So I hope I've uh, convinced you that the, this uh, evolutionary perspective is useful for understanding this love-hate relationship that we have with sleep. And I want to thank you all for staying awake. I didn't see anyone sleeping. Thank you. And I want to especially thank my uh, collaborator in a lot of this, David Sampson.
I'm talking about adaptations to high altitude. Well, first, let's ask, what is high altitude? We typically define high altitude as uh, 2,500 meters, that is 8,000 feet or higher. And that obviously covers a lot of ground. Uh, down on the bottom right, uh, you might be thinking, oh, high altitude and rugged mountaineers uh, seeking to climb to the summit of Mount Manaslu at 27,000 feet. Or you may think of athletes, such as this soccer player from, low out, from sea level who is playing at 12,000 feet in Bolivia. And those are ways in which many, many people are exposed to high altitude. The top two photos describe another type of exposure to high altitude, and that is people who have been living, who are the descendants of populations that have been resident at high altitude for thousands of years. On the right are Andean Highlander children uh, who are descended from a population that has lived there at high altitude, in this case, about 14,000 feet, for something like 14,000 years. On the left, the Tibetan woman spinning is the descendant of Tibetan populations, and there have been people living on the Tibetan plateau for 20 to 30,000 years. So you can see that the exposure and the actual altitude varies enormously when we talk about adaptations to high altitude. Why is high altitude so interesting? Well, one of the reasons it's so interesting is that there is a unique and very severe stress, and it's called hypoxia, less than the usual oxygen level. If we think of ourselves here in San Diego, think of taking a lung full of air and you get a certain number of molecules. Let's call that 100%. As you go up in altitude, barometric pressure falls, and as we know, the molecules grow further apart, and there are fewer molecules per unit of, of volume. By the time we're in Denver at 1,500 meters, or about 5,100 feet, uh, eat that same lungful of air has only about 80% of those oxygen molecules. At Pikes Peak, at about 14,100 feet, each lungful of air has only about 58% of the same molecules. Now, this is a severe stress, and it's a stress that's constant. It doesn't go away uh, with the seasons. It doesn't go away if you're rich or you're poor. So this makes it a good stress to study. Now, what is an adaptation, and what is hypoxia have to do with being a, a stress to which we might have to adapt. Well, we need to get a sufficient number of oxygen molecules from our lungs in the ambient air. We need to exchange those with our bloodstream. We need to transport those oxygen molecules through the heart and the cardiovascular system and deliver them to our mitochondria where they are used. And our mitochondria must have those oxygen molecules. So what do we do when faced with a situation where, let's say, there are only 60% of the usual number of oxygen molecules? Well, something has to happen with gas exchange, gas transport, or gas use. 
and that something are adaptations. And I'll use adaptation as a very, in a very general way to refer to a biological response that increases survival and reproduction under a stress. And adaptations can take place on a wide range of time scales. As the x-axis shows, some acclimatizations can take place in seconds, hours, days, or months. Uh, we refer to those that are really fast and are reversible as acclimatizations. Another type of adaptation occurs if we grow up under a particular stress. Uh, that's an irreversible developmental adaptation. Over the course of generations and thousands of years, or hundreds of thousands of years, natural selection may result in an increase in allele frequency of alleles at, at, that uh, are uh, effective at counteracting the, uh, the environmental stress. Let's first look at ourselves. I'm assuming that everyone here is like me, and we've all been born and raised at low altitude. So we lowlanders, let's say we go to Pikes Peak or we go to Everest Base Camp. One, we acclimatize. We acclimatize at the level of oxygen exchange by increasing our breathing. And that you can see from this plot that shows over days at altitude, from before you go to altitude to up to about three weeks or a month at altitude, our ventilation increases enormously. And what does that do? It means that the number of liters of air that we're taking in, in a minute, is increased. That's how we get enough oxygen molecules, or how our bodies are responding to, or acclimatizing, so that we get enough oxygen molecules, at least at the beginning of the oxygen transport system. This is a, an acclimatization that is sustained for years at high altitude. After decades, it starts to fade and become blunted. We also acclimatize at the level of gas transport or oxygen transport by hemoglobin. And the way we do that is there is an increase in an erythropoietin that stimulates the production of more red blood cells containing more hemoglobin, more uh, hemoglobin molecules to carry oxygen. So again, now we're adapting at the level of gas transport. The higher the altitude, the higher the stress, the higher the hemoglobin concentration. And this also is an acclimatization response that lasts indefinitely until we return to low altitude, and then it, it is reversed. At the level of gas use or oxygen use, something very puzzling happens, and that is, at least for the first few weeks at altitude, our gas use, as measured by our basal metabolic rate, that's the minimum amount of uh, oxygen that's required to keep us alive by our heart beating and, uh, and breathing and so forth, that actually increases for the first couple of weeks at altitude. And then it, by, uh, by three weeks or four weeks, it has uh, returned to its pre-exposure level. So those are acclimatizations. And these are within the purview of all people. 
How is it that we mount those acclimatizations? Well, we do so because we have an oxygen homeostasis pathway consisting of genes and proteins, and uh, it's a very lovely pathway. The first element in the pathway is the oxygen sensor. And it is a protein that is coded for by a gene called Eglin-1. Second elements in the pathway are subunits of uh, proteins that are called hypoxia-inducible factors. And we have three of them, hypoxia-inducible factors 1, 2, and 3. Hypoxia-inducible factor 1 is called 1 because it has a particular uh, protein that is coded for by a gene called HIF-1, HIF for hypoxia-inducible factor 1A. HIF-2 has a subunit coded for by HIF-2A, and the same for HIF-3. These three hypoxia-inducible factors are transcription factors. And they, once the oxygen sensor senses that a cell is hypoxic, these hypoxia-inducible factors accumulate, and they induce the transcription of hundreds of target genes that increase gas exchange, increase gas transport, and uh, modify gas use. One of the target genes is erythropoietin. Why do we have this oxygen homeostasis pathway? Well, we have this oxygen homeostasis pathway because we're descended from ancestors that lived at a wide range of atmospheric oxygen content. The red line here shows the 21%. This is the number that we all learn in school. Air contains 21% of oxygen. But it hasn't always. Along the x-axis here, you'll see millions of years. And we're showing that until about 650 million years ago, the Earth's atmosphere was composed of less than 5% oxygen. Around 600 million years ago, multicellular animals evolved. It was at this time that HIF-1-alpha also evolved. So we share this with all of our multicellular uh, animal uh, compatriots, if you will. A little bit later, around 550 million years ago, vertebrates arose, and HIF-2-alpha evolved. Again, we share this with all of our fellow vertebrates. At the time, oxygen concentration was only about 12%. Then we went through some periods of very high oxygen low, and about 200 million years ago, mammals evolved. And with the evolution of mammals, we see the evolution of our third hypoxia-inducible factor one. So the why question of why are we able to respond and acclimatize to high altitudes is uh, that we are descended from a series of ancestors that uh, evolved these elements of our oxygen homeostasis system. So that implies then, well, okay, we must all, we being all seven billion of us humans, respond in the same way to high-altitude hypoxic stress. Let's look at that. And let's ask whether women like this uh, Tibetan Highlander living in the shadow of Mount Manaslu climatize in the same way we do. 
Let's look at gas exchange, and we're comparing here Tibetan and Andean Highlanders. And let's focus on the area above 3,500 meters. That is, the people, the samples of people who are under hypoxic stress. And you can see that in general, what has happened is that Tibetan Highlanders in the blue triangles have retained the acclimatization response of high breathing. The Andean Highlanders in general have not. They have blunted that response. With respect to gas transport, the opposite occurs. Andean Highlanders have essentially retained the acclimatization response, while Tibetan Highlanders have blunted that response. What about gas use? Here's a dissertation project for someone. We don't have very much information. The little information that we have is that both Andean and Tibetan Highlanders have normal, as expected, uh, oxygen use. So we don't see any evidence for population differences there. Well, now, in addition to having three types of adaptations, Andean, Tibetan, and Lowlander, we also have to think about acclimatizations, developmental adaptations, and genetic adaptations. So why do we think we, this contrast exists? Well, with uh, genomics and being able to examine whole genomes, we've discovered that the actual oxygen sensor gene, Eglin-1, has a number of variants. And that the variants in Eglin-1 that exist in Andean populations are different from those that exist in Tibetan populations and in turn, those are different from the variants that exist here at low altitude. The variants are not fixed, but they are a different, a very different allele frequencies. So this is one reason for uh, Andean Highlanders having the particular pattern of low ventilation, high, uh, hemoglo uh, high gas transport. Tibetans on the other hand, not only have mutations in the oxygen sensor, they also have mutations in the HIF2-alpha element of hypoxia-inducible factor 2. And these are factors uh, of uh, Tibetan Highlanders that result in a dampened response to high-altitude hypoxia. And the particular association that is particularly strong is that with hemoglobin concentration. Homozygotes for the Tibetan form of HIF2 have two grams of hemoglobin less than their compatriots who have the ancestral or low-altitude form of that same gene. So the reason then for this difference between Andean and Tibetan Highlanders relates to natural selection and local adaptation. We have Andean Highlanders and Tibetan Highlanders who have adapted to the same stress of high-altitude hypoxia, but on a local level with different mutations and, different muta and mutations in, at different loci. Now, what are the implications for medicine? whether we're at high altitude or low. You may be surprised to learn 
that something like 30% of the, the deaths in the U.S. are associated with hypoxia. They're not caused by hypoxia, but they're associated with hypoxia. And now that we understand that we have distinctive oxygen homeostasis pathways, genes, molecules, proteins, and responses, we can now look at those deaths that are associated with hypoxia and the diseases that precede them, and we can ask questions about, well, do certain variants in the oxygen homeostasis pathway make us more vulnerable? Or do they change uh, the prognosis of a disease associated with hypoxia? And does this give us opportunity for developing pharmacological interventions? And all of those are uh, in process. And so this is one way where uh, evolutionary medicine, looking at our evolutionary history, helps us understand and come up with new ways of looking at uh, causes and uh, factors associated with health and disease in our own population. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.